This podcast is a part of the Carbon Almanac Network of Podcasts. Hi, I'm Imma. I live in Scotland. Hi, I'm Jen and I'm from Canada. Hi, I'm Oladranji and I'm from Nigeria. Hello, I'm Liki and I live in Paris. Hey, I'm Rod. I'm from Peru. Welcome to Carbon Sessions, a podcast with carbon conversations for every day with everyone from everywhere in the world. In our conversations, we share ideas, perspectives, questions, and things we can actually do to make a difference. So don't be shy and join our Carbon Sessions because it's not too late. Hi, I'm Leaky. Hi, I'm Jen. Hi, I'm Brian. And we're here at Carbon Conversations with our fabulous guest for the day of Jason Angel, who is joining us to have a wonderful, low-key conversation today about the things he's been doing in the world to help make it a better place. So Jason, thanks for joining us today. I'm going to let you describe a little bit about yourself and all the things you've been doing, and then we're going to start uh, diving into some questions about those things. So I'll turn the microphone over to you. Okay, sounds great. So good to be with you all. So how to summarize, I guess, my life and what I do uh, in a (laughs) nutshell. So, you know, I I would say kind of when I think about where I am today, I generally think about how for about 10 years of my life, I was working in the political arena and the policy arena. I was directing policy for the Working Families Party, which is a, a very progressive party in New York State living in New York City. And I kind of had a mini, I wouldn't say a midlife crisis, because I don't know if I was at midlife yet. But I had a crisis in the sense of if a lot of the problems we face, whether they're climate related, or social inequity related, a lot of the problems we face can't all be solved by policy, and they require some level of personal life transformation. Uh, You know, what was my life doing about that? And so my wife and I ended up moving to Argentina for about two years. And we ended up on a farm in Argentina that was a beautiful place run by a beautiful family. And we both got hooked into farming and it became a way to kind of live some of the values we thought that were necessary in order to build a more regenerative world. And so we came back here and started a farm on family land about 10 years ago now and just got involved in a bunch of stuff. I mean, I think One thing about climate activism I think about is that it's not just about the environment. It's about people. It's about how we treat the land. It's about a lot of different things. And so since we started the farm, which serves food to the community and trains new farmers, we've started a nonprofit called the Ecological Citizens Project, which connects the work we're doing to the wider Hudson Valley community. And then a year or so ago, I must have uh, fallen down and hit my head, I decided to run for local town board. And really, that is because with the problems we face, I've kind of learned as I've gotten older, there's no one solution. And so we really need as many tools in the toolbox as possible. And so I just want to explore what you can do at the local government level around that issue. So um, that that is it. That's 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 my life in a nutshell. <laughs> Yeah. That's great. Well, I know there's even more to it than all that, but uh, but that's a lot of exciting things that you're up to. So this farm is a place that you and your family live, and you're raising your family there at the farm. Can you tell us a little bit about what a day is like 
for you, I'm sure it's very different in the deep winter versus the spring versus the summer as the seasons change, but give us some sort of context for life for the angel family there at the farm. And it's, and it's called Long Haul Farm. It is. Yeah. It's called Long Haul Farm and we're located in Garrison, New York, about an hour north of New York City. Um, and life right now, I'm looking out at the fields and it's wintertime here. So life for us as a farmer in the wintertime is a chance to step back from the growing cycle. You know, it's a chance to kind of look at seed catalogs and think about things you're going to plant. It's one of the most hopeful parts of a farming season because it's all imagining the next season without weeds growing yet. So farm at this point of the season, the farm is dormant. Um, and then over the course of the season, our farm is is a small farm. So we practice regenerative agriculture. You know, there's things to talk about there, but it's a way of farming that is leaving the soil better off than you found it. Um, it's not as related to sustainable, which is the idea of keeping it at the same place. Regeneration is really about the idea of, of leaving it better off. So regenerative farming techniques, um, we on about a half acre of vegetable growing space, we have 50 families in our CSA. And then we do small scale uh, livestock, including pigs, chickens and turkeys. And then we also train new farmers, uh, primarily farmers of color from low income urban areas on our farm during the summer. So this is the chance to get fat a little bit as a farmer, uh, you know, have have some wine by the fireplace and then work it all off in a couple months. So <laughs> I like that. I like that. Um, the thing I'm curious of when you're talking about like making the land better, that regenerative construct, like what are some of the techniques used for in your farm that are helping improve the land and leave it better than you found it better than sustainable? Good question. So you know, some of the basics are you're always adding back to the soil. So whether that be compost, whether that be uh, horse manure from the farm down the road, you're just constantly feeding the soil. I mean, when you think about it, your, your job kind of becomes about feeding the soil. You know, a second probably major principle is you're just never leaving soil uncovered. So like very large scale farms that'll kind of plow in the crop and leave it there, you know, that releases a lot of carbon in the atmosphere. And so you're always keeping your farm mulched or covered. We practice really no-till and no big machinery farming. There really aren't many fossil fuel inputs coming in. Uh, and so you're really trying to use all of the different organic materials in nature to feed the soil and regenerate it instead of kind of just constantly taking things out of it. I said that I had a question or six, and now I have even more. But I wanted to go back to where you said at the beginning, it's not just about policy, but it's about transformation. And then my second question is, how does one just end up moving to Argentina? <laughs> <laughs> Good question. So, <laughs> I mean, don't get me wrong. I definitely believe that policy change and political change is required for climate work and, and building better society. I just think for me personally, you know, I found myself writing white papers or draft legislation in New York City, consuming like every good New York City person, kind of cut off from nature, thinking about an apartment that we could afford or not. And I just felt like, you know, it's hard to divorce 
our lives and the way we live from the work we're doing. It just didn't seem enough to be like, I want to pass a good piece of environmental legislation, but I also want a second and third home and to vacation, you know, in a warm place in the winter. So there was, to me, a real calling about um, how to build a life model that aligns with some of your political aspirations and values. And that, Jen, led us down a long wormhole of of trying to build a life that way. And so to your second question about Argentina, I don't know if there's a good answer. Uh, I kind of realized after 10 years that it wasn't just about finding a new job. I kind of was like chafing against my way of life. And so about a year before we moved, um, Argentina sounded like a romantic place. My wife wanted to learn Spanish. She was writing her dissertation in public health and needed to do that for a year. I was kind of trying to figure out, I had kind of gotten the job I wanted and was still unhappy. So I was like, ooh, I'm kind of at a really blank spot. I don't know what the next step is. And so Argentina seemed like a romantic place to go. We actually left two weeks after we got married and we put aside a little bit of money. So we asked for no wedding gifts but we asked for contributions to like sustain us in this year. And, and after about three months in Buenos Aires, we're like, we don't have jobs. Cities are really made for people that work. I mean, you know, and we're like, we're only going to be down here for like three months if, if we don't move. And so we ended up being in Buenos Aires, then moving down to Patagonia where a friend had just traveled through to an amazing town. And my wife just happened to find a, 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 a little cabin for rent on a farm. It sounded a little bit dicey. I mean, she had learned Spanish. They like they mentioned circle dances, and we were like, oh, I don't know. It sounds a little dicey, but but it's only two hundred dollars a month, and we moved down there, and it was just this family had been running a sustainable farm for twenty years, and I was kind of writing, thinking in the morning, volunteering for them on their farm in the afternoon, and that that routine of kind of mixing the intellectual work uh, with the physical work just made me a lot happier. And I feel like sometimes we all, or people who get highly educated, get trained to think of physical work as something below them. And we get isolated from physical work. And I just found that I wanted a life that blended both the intellectual work and the physical. And so we came back and, um, and started the farm about 10 years ago. Amazing. Thank you. Yeah. Jenny, you said you had six. You want to keep peppering him? <laughs> <laughs> or Leaky and well, I can pepper I... him next. <laughs> well, I'll ask one more. There'll be half of my six. Um, so what is lighting you up now? Uh, especially about climate, especially about carbon, especially about climate. Okay. What's lighting you up now? So great question. I mean, so the, the project that's probably taking the most of my time right now is through our nonprofit, which is called the Ecological Citizens Project. And we launched a program called the Regenerative Communities Program a couple of years ago. And the basic idea is that the farming world is very white. It's very old. It's aging out. We need new farmers and we need farmers across the spectrum. And so we started training farmers on our, our farm about three years ago, and then working with nearby cities to gain access to municipal land where the farmers we train are, are going 
to those sites and they're creating what we're thinking of as public food gardens. So a community farmer grows food on those sites and, and anybody is welcome to come and harvest it. So it's kind of, you know, a return to a commons idea. And so what's really uh, taking a lot of our energy right now is we're sustaining that program through foundations and philanthropic giving. But, you know, if you want to change the world, you probably can't do it only on philanthropic giving alone. And so we got a grant from New York State to try to develop community-owned solar in Peekskill, where by changing the ownership structure, you have control over the profits off of the solar system. And so we're trying to steer those profits towards paying urban farmers. So, you know, not to go deeply into it, but like, you know, food, like everything else, obviously in a capitalist economy is a commodity. And so even as a small farmer, like we find as a small farmer, you know, if you're trying to be economically viable as a small farmer, you are growing microgreens for restaurants, or you are bringing your produce to the farmer's market where people are willing to pay the most for it. And all of a sudden, your food is not necessarily going to people who need it most. Um, and so if we start thinking to ourselves like, well, what if in a co food commodity world, the people who can't afford it don't get to eat it? That's just too bad. It's a commodity, right? But if we start to think about building a new energy system and who owns it and where the profits go, which is what wakes me up in the middle of the night, it's kind of transformative, right? And if a farmer is paid by a revenue stream off of solar to grow food, they've kind of taken a bit of food out of the commodity system. And you can now treat it like a human right. You can treat it like food should go to people who need it most, regardless of ability to pay. I believe even if we could do it in the city of Peekskill, a small city, demonstrate that you can build solar and, and redirect the profits from it, then I think, you know, it can be really impactful for other communities. So Jason, we've known each other for a number of years now, but it's interesting. I don't chat with you much about my day job, but in my day job, I actually deal with a ton of solar developers all across the country. And we do tons of transactions and large scale solar projects all across the country. So after this recording, we got to talk more about that because I feel like I've got a number of them that may be interested in thinking through as they're deploying numerous community solar projects across the country, incorporating, if you could help fashion some kind of model that like helps them go first. I don't know that we should do it all here in the podcast, but uh, I'm very excited to chat through that. Brian, that's um, amazing. So obviously I'm very excited to talk about that. And I just want to point out the irony that we have this like global podcast, everybody on different lines. Me and you live like five miles from each other. Right. And like we're being united in this conversation via this. With, so that's awesome. With Leaky in Paris and Jen out in Western Canada, right? <laughs> yeah. I love it. I love it. Are you envisioning that solar in the same space as the public commons? No, it doesn't have to be. They can be divorced. Yeah, they can be divorced. I think it's just about creating like a community benefit fund off of the solar project, mm -hmm. but they don't have to be co-located in the exact same space. Yeah. Although yeah. there's this interesting thing about where certain crops kind of growing, and you would know more about this than I, are starting to be grown under solar panels that actually like pivot. Yeah. Because they like, they capture the sun, but then at a certain point, they want to let the sun through to the plants, but at certain crops benefit from something that can actually create a certain amount of shade for them. 
Yeah. And so there are these farms being created where crops are grown under a solar field on purpose. And like the solar panels actually move out of the way for a certain point in the day and then come back. I don't know if you've heard about that. I have. And it, I think it makes a lot of sense because it, once you dig into the farming world, there's a lot of farms just can't compete in the globalized food economy and against very, very large farm holdings. And so integrating solar that provides another revenue stream for farmers with farms makes a lot of sense. And I mean, I've just got to say, I mean, Brian, just like you said in the beginning about taking climate, but kind of sprinkling it in different fields, I feel like the reason I'm interested in community-owned solar is because most environmentalists, they're like, we just want solar because it's good for the earth. They're not necessarily putting their economist hat on and saying, well, who's going to own actually the infrastructure of the next energy system and, and where are the profits going? And so I think it's worth looking beyond just the renewable energy part and asking the kind of economic question part about as we're transitioning to a whole new energy system, who owns the assets and where do the profits go, you know, which is all a fun conversation to talk about on Friday. afternoon. <laughs> Leaky, you mentioned in chat that you had a question. Yes, I have a question. I have a lot of admiration for people who are involved in politics and especially people that are running for the municipal politics. And I don't know if it works the same way uh, in the U.S. and in France, but the mayor and the, and, the, and the local politics are very important because they are the first, like the people that are really in touch with the people locally. And I think that this job, it is part of the of politics. It's very, very important. It's, it's really where things, real things, real action are taken and real things are happening. So first, uh, kudos to you for running for that. And then secondly, I'm, I have a lot of admiration for people who are involved in doing that because um, politics can be very divisive and the climate can be extremely divisive. And when you combine those two, it's very difficult to find a consensus because sometimes people believe something, but they just think, okay, I vote against that or I just I reject that because you know, the guy is not for my party. And we see that a lot at a different level of policy making. So how do you deal with that? I think it's a very broad question, but... I think it's a good question, Leaky. I mean, I... Uh... So um, I think you're right that local politics, I think it does work the same. Mayors and council members, they are the closest form of government to people and to people's lives. So I do think there's an element where, you know, people are going to stop you and reach out to you if there's a pothole on their dirt road or if there's a cell tower being built. So everything from those kind of everyday life issues. And then secondarily, it's like, you know, like, for example, I, I'm on the town board. It's all part time. Everybody lives here in this community. And, you know, you can walk down to a town board meeting. So it's it's more accessible. Right. And so I, I do think, I mean, personally, in times that are really divisive politically at national level, state levels, that local politics usually is is a good antidote to that divisiveness, because at least at the very least, you're not just operating in a vacuum of kind of what political party you are or what ideology you're talking about a place you live together. And so, you know, that's a really uh, a really important thing. 
And, you know, so I, I've been talking, I cannot mention the two examples of kind of like potholes in a road with local government, but I also, one of the reasons why um, I wanted to run and why our nonprofit kind of focuses on local level solutions is without getting too wonky, I used to teach American government um, at Bronx Community College and the 10th Amendment I was going to quiz you. I was like, you go to teacher mode. Does anybody know what the 10th Amendment says? <laughs> no. <laughs> no. <laughs> so so I, I consider the 10th Amendment to be the radical clause in the Constitution. And it basically says all powers not reserved for the United States government nor prohibited to the states are reserved for the people. And so really what that means is at the local level, if you're pushing a new idea or new policy, you can demonstrate it at the local level because you're moving ahead of the state government or the national government, right? And so an example of that is, Brian knows it, so our local municipality helped launch what's called Community Choice Aggregation, the CCA, which allows now 10 different municipalities in the Hudson Valley to purchase their electricity together. It's like a bulk purchasing club. And so because we've all come together across 10 municipalities, we can now say to electricity suppliers, like, okay, we're 45,000 households. This account is worth a lot of money. We want renewable energy. We want to dictate where our electricity comes from, right? And that has done that. And it saved people money. So I, I guess I'm just saying, like, while some people are like, local government is just for dog catchers. I think it's the place where, like, smart people, people who want to experiment, they can plug in. And I kind of feel like a lot of the systems we've built are crumbling. And so we're in a period needing, like, reinventioning, reimagining. And so I think local levels are really good places to do that. I have other reflections about being a local elected official, but I, I'll hold them, I'll hold them off. But it, I agree with you that it, it's close to the people. And um, I guess you use the word admiration. I would say one lesson learned I have is like, I think I used to admire elected officials more. And I'm kind of now that I'm doing it, I'm like, I don't think we should admire them anymore. I don't think we should like hold them up if we ever do. Like it's, it's like being a plumber. Like you have a pretty basic job to do. Yeah. Yeah. How do you help people? Where's the budget going? So yeah. I, I wish we kind of took it yeah. off its pedestal a little bit more. And you cannot be on holiday or have your evenings because you are on call all the time and you cannot hide because, you know, you live there. So you have to face your decision and face the people you are serving. Yeah. So that's admiration. Yeah. yeah. And I, I also admire plumbers because, you know, I don't want to do that. <laughs> um, it's true. And you, yeah, it's very true. Yeah. So my question about that, as you said, often the municipal local people close to the ground come up with things long before the big government comes up with it or even thinks of it. But how do you manage the frustration of moving faster? then the large structure moves. When there's a great idea, there's something that's come up, there's an initiative that's planned, there's something that you would love to see adopted everywhere. And sometimes when you're dealing with a large institution, it can take decades yeah. to get anywhere. So how do you manage the expectations and the frustrations? There? That's, that's a good question. I mean, I, I think one thing I'd say is 
you you definitely can't wait around for state or federal or international governments to act on something you care about because like you're saying these are gigantic bureaucracies you know often filled with people that don't want to act unless someone else is act acted and so i definitely think one way i've kept myself mentally sane is to realize that those structures take a while to act and so, you know, the point of working at the local level is, like you said, Jen, you can experiment. You're not fooling yourself. Like doing something in one town is not changing it for the rest of the world. But I think the most important thing, it's better to, to build something that people can come visit and see than to write a great white paper or put a really great PowerPoint out there, you know? And so I think if one town does something and six or seven or eight more do it, then you do start to increase the chances that the state does it. And I think another thing is, unlike being in a for-profit business where you're kind of always protecting your software and you know your plans, like at this level, you, you want to give it away for free. You want people to steal it. And so if that means like the county comes in and they do it and you take no credit for it, then that's the way to do it. Like give it all away, let people do it, take no credit, and it's kind of freeware, you know? Thank you. I just wanted to jump on the comment that you've just made that it's not like, you know, uh, in companies that people tend to protect your invention. And this is something that I actually see more and more in the startup world is that because the climate change is so pressing that we need to act now, that the startups now are leaning towards sharing more and make it, you know, when there's an innovation, they put it and say, okay, you can use it and spread the idea. And so, so this is a, what, what is currently done in the municipalities and also in the non-for-profit world is also spreading, using ideas of spreading ideas is also reflecting uh, in the startup world, in the private companies. I agree with that. It's good to hear that that's starting to kind of move into the private sector and the for-profit sector. And I still even think from the non-profit sector and the local government level, like we all have to learn to think this way more. And once you do, I think it lends itself to 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 this question of how ideas spread, like, like I know from local municipal work, you need to package your ideas and give them away. So if there's a local law that you pass to make something happen, you need to publish that law and give it to other municipalities so they can use it. If you identified lands for farming by using, you know, the county's tax parcel ID folder, you need to document it as a nonprofit, lay out a roadmap for other people to use. If you want it to spread and you want other people to use it, you have to build it into how you present material. But it's good to hear that that's spreading as well. You know, I think this is a really interesting intersection for me. There's a charity that I've been involved with for a number of years called New Story. They've sort of done a number of things to innovate and build homes in impoverished areas around the world. They average about $4,000 to $5,000 for a fully constructed home for a family. Mm. It's like amazing what they've done by like innovating what they're doing. They've actually designed and engineered this amazing 3D printer that 3D prints a house that you get to move into. Anyway, some really cool stuff. And one of their original concepts when they were first founding this nonprofit and getting it going was to be contrarian what with what is often the case in the nonprofit community, which is to like have your ideas and the way you do things and keep them to yourselves. Mm -hmm. And so they said, hey, when we're founding this charity, we're gonna go do some smart things and some R&D and come up with good ways of doing things. 
And we want to be very intentional, as you were just speaking about, Jason and Leakey, at documenting those along the way and creating them as like free code, you know, and they've actually created like on their website, like my wife and I were one of their early people who funded a home on their website. And at the time, they were like cut and pasting little images to show that the like fundraiser bar was going up. They were like doing it manually. But since then, they built out this really beautiful website that does all this great fundraising tools. And then they gave it away as like source code that they're like, here's a tool every other nonprofit can go use. We built it in a way that you can use it easily. And then they've come and done all these other things along the way. And they really has been an intentional part of their organization. And as I stop and think about this climate challenge that we're facing, I, I see so much of exactly what you just spoke about, where like there's lots of smart ideas happening, like innovation is happening in so many pockets. I could consume so many different news stories and videos all the time. And, and Jason, I'm curious, you've done some of this in your ecological citizens project and there with your farm, you've done some of this. Any tips on, and, and, and your political service, tips to other people out there pushing the envelope, innovating, creating solutions in how they're helping impact the climate in a positive direction, like tips and ideas of how to do, do the documenting, how to go get the word out, um, how to, I think there's one thing maybe is like how to not feel caught up that the, like they're bragging, right? Like, Hey, I did this great idea, right? There's a little bit of that holdback. Well, I don't want to brag about my idea, but maybe they should thoughts and, and, and feedback on that sort of framework to help our listeners do more of that. Hmm. That's such a, um, so, you know, as I think about it, I mean, you know, I know we kind of started talking by talking about the idea of personal transformation. And I, you know, as I think about it, like personally think about it, like I, I think to me, like if I ever have an inclination to hold that sort of thing back or not give a three pager I wrote up on how to do something to another organization, or like if if I had talked about an idea with an organization, then I saw that they got a news piece written about them, you know, or whatever. Like when I stopped to think about it, you know, we all have to struggle with our own ego and our own desire to be the one. And we all, most of me, I grew up in Western culture, Western capitalist culture that's very heavily focused on the individual and status. And so I, I my first tip, I don't know, Brian, if it's easy is that like we all have to realize that we are products of a certain way of seeing the world and it's not like the far east that values kind of collectivism and kind of kill your ego so you can be part of the world you know we are very individual focused and so i think everybody does need to ask themselves like when they're holding on to something and their inclination to hold on versus to give away, how much of that is tied to their own sense of, of ego and individual desire. And I think like if we're going to move there, a lot of us all have to do work on letting go of those things. So that's one kind of metaphysical, I guess, answer. And that's just personally something I think about. And then the second is the spaces we're operating in, you know, when you start working and trying to promote BIPOC, Black, Indigenous people of color, farmers, or organizations, I think you quickly have to realize also that you should be at the back of the room. That like, if there is a panel discussion or a conference or an interview, like you should really as much as possible move to the back and let other people lead. 
And it's a weird thing to do across all the spaces, like being in politics, like where a lot of politics feels like you're trying to always get credit for what you do. Like I've definitely found the more you take credit for something, the less progress you make. And so I would I would just say your question, like as you go, struggle with those things and document. Really think about documenting key lessons you learn as you go and key tools and put them in a G Drive folder. So when you get to the end of a success, you have something to share that other people can use. That's awesome. Really good words of advice. I, I think your your commentary there about recognizing that we're all growing up in, and raised in different places makes makes a lot of sense. A question for you. I'm going to pivot to a different topic. One of the other things, and you haven't mentioned it yet, but I know that you've been doing some work on for a little while is leading towards sort of, you know, bike transportation and helping create, you know, in our local community, uh, a bike day and really using mapping and, and going through a whole community engagement process to help create both biking opportunities within the street landscape, as well as separately, this larger sort of like trail network of can we get in coordination with some private landowners and things, can we get some longer trails put together that allow for biking at distance without lots of road crossings and that kind of stuff. Can you can you share a little bit about that? Because I, I think that's something also that is a great idea. You've really done amazing work with it and could spread into so many other communities. Yeah, it's interesting. Like, so we'd love to talk about the Phillipstown Trail. And, and just to back it up, my wife and I, Jocelyn, our nonprofit was involved in doing a participatory democracy process called the Community Congress. And it's kind of getting at these larger questions, again, like, you know, national problems, people, divisive politics, money in politics, what can you do at the local level? And so we just facilitated in our town, Brian, as you know, the Community Congress process, and then in the city of Peekskill, which is very, very different um, demographically. And it was a very simple process. It was just community members in a place probably have their own ideas about how to make their community better and you should ask them. And so we just did a process where any community member could put forward their top priority to build a better community. And all of those ideas that were presented, we put on a ballot and then we mailed that ballot to every household in the community. And we said, what are your top three priorities? So the idea was just to let people have a way of setting the agenda that would help guide elected officials. I mean, to me, it's really more democracy than we usually think of. And so out of that process, Brian, came the number one voted priority in Phillipstown, our community, was improved and safe biking and walking trails. So weirdly enough, Brian, we also did that community congress process in Peekskill, which you know well. I mean, mm -hmm. Peekskill's five mm -hmm. miles south of us, primarily low income, majority... Hispanic and Black, very different community. Mm -hmm. And safe biking and walking also was the number one priority. It's very weird. Who who knew so many people just want to be able to like safely walk or bike somewhere? <laughs> Two very different communities. And so that process um, in Phillips Sound led to the Phillips Sound Trails Committee. And so uh, we've been working. It's a group of community volunteers, amazing people. The only way that local stuff gets done is community volunteers who say, you know what? I care about this. I'm going to give up a couple nights a week. I'm going to jump on a Zoom call. I'm going to do real work. Laura Bozy and Rebecca Ramirez are two community volunteers who are the chairs of the Trails Committee. 
And so we got a grant from New York State. And so we're currently in the process of exploring the feasibility of building a, a biking and walking path between Cold Spring and Garrison and all the connecting points, the libraries and the parks and the, and the schools. And so I guess what I've learned is that it's very difficult to build biking and walking infrastructure after you've committed to cars so deeply. Not impossible, but difficult. Difficult because people overwhelmingly support it. But when you're building a trail near or through someone's property, you know, one person can be in the way of something that could benefit the whole community. So it's it's really interesting work. Obviously, it's a key part of building more carbon-friendly communities. I mean, there's so much mileage is just, just tied to like local errands. I mean, it's tied to personal health uh, and people moving around. And I know for me, I, I guess it's a conflict of interest. Like I once spent a summer biking with two friends around Europe. Like there's nothing more. I love biking. And my bike has been hanging in my garage yeah. for like 10 years. I mean, my kids don't know how to bike. And it's like, it drives me crazy. So Finding ways to build that sort of infrastructure are so important. Um, and uh, and Leaky's got a question, but I I forgot that the community congress thing was actually one of the parts that we got to the trails. Yeah. But that itself is a, an amazing idea. Democracy that like just at the most like granular kind of level, it felt like almost unusual and freeing to be like, wait, you just want to know like any idea we've got that could be good for our community? Like that, it felt weird but awesome. Anyway, Leaky, over to you. Yes, uh, Jason, your work is quite wide extended. So if you have one word or one phrase or one sentence to summarize what you do, you and Jocelyn, what would that be? A word, phrase, or sentence? I would say that we made a pretty critical decision to remove the barrier between our work and our life. We both stopped thinking about ourselves as, you know, from nine to five, we do this. And, and then in during the weekends, we do this stuff, which we really love. We really started to think about how do we figure out what we love and then build our lives around that. So I know that wasn't one word or one sentence, Leaky, but like, no. <laughs> Test failed. Huh? I'm like, beautiful answer. I was trying to find the title for this podcast episode. <laughs> oh, that's her real, her real question behind the question. Yeah. I mean, I, I think you know, <laughs> the real question, that's up to you all to have to read. The, that's the editing. Like, good luck with this conversation. You know? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> But um, I mean, I would say getting back to the Argentina is that like what, when I hit that wall of like what I what I professionally thought I wanted to do and like I, I really spent six months asking myself, what do I love? And I don't think I had put that serious time into really asking myself that question. And I'm shocked that it, I was 35 at the time. I'm shocked it took me that long in life to to seriously think about what and I don't mean love makes me happy. I mean, like, what do I find purpose in? What do I find meaning in to really go through that? And then from there to say, well, how do I then build my life around that? Like, how do we figure out the money? Where are we getting health care? You know, um, and and piece that together. And so 
ecological. Can I come up with one word? I mean, we are like, <laughs> like what does an ecological life look like? We all have multiple, we all have like multiple passions and interests and talents, but like we only get paid to do one of them. So the rest of them we don't get to do. So I'm like, what is it? Like once we acknowledge we're like connected to everything, we're multiple people, we have multiple passions. Like it doesn't make for a good interview, but <laughs> I know, I know, I know. Living a life of ecological authenticity with Jason Angel. There you go. <laughs> I, like that. I like that one. Okay. Um, uh, whatever the title is, it's going to be a great episode, and, and we're really excited to share it. Uh, Jason, I have to say a really big thanks for for jumping on to the recording studio with us. It's It's been a, a great hour spent hanging out with you and sharing, you know, all the things you're doing with uh, and my friendship with you, with my other friends, Jen and Leaky here, and the whole Carbon Almanac community. It, it's been an honor. We really appreciate your time and all the time and energy you're doing to help our world be a better place. Uh, and, and through your actions and your experimentation and your leadership. So big shout out. And I look forward to pulling our bikes off our respective garage walls and, and going for a bike ride at some point soon. Yeah, I feel that we can do a second session as well because there's so still so much, so many questions that we want to ask you. But I know. Yeah. Yeah. I, I've really actually yeah. really enjoyed the conversation. It was really fun. Really enjoyed talking to you all. And I guess one closing thought I would offer is, you know, I talk to a lot of different people about climate activism and change, you know, and I get the sense there's a lot of despair. And there's a lot of kind of paralysis. And I guess the only thing I would say is that while that is true, like while many of the living systems and the human built systems we are living in are facing really collapse, the bright side of that story is that we're going to need to rebuild them. And I just think there's a lot, mm -hmm. once you enter that headspace of creativity and reimagining and re-envisioning, it kind of lifts some of the despair. So I just think it's really important to move in that way and kind of challenge all of ourselves to enter that more radical visioning space where we're willing to experiment in the way we live, our, our own life models and what we do in our community, both politically and personally. Yeah, very well said. Look yeah. forward to another discussion about everything under the sun, really. Yeah. <laughs> Excellent. Excellent. Okay. All right. Again, Jason, awesome. Thank you so much. Thank, thank you. Thank you. <laughs> Bye. Bye. You've been listening to Carbon Sessions, a podcast with carbon conversations for every day with everyone from everywhere in the world. We'd love you to join the Carbon Sessions so you too can share your perspectives from wherever you are. This is a great way for our community to learn from your ideas and experiences, connect, and take action. If you want to add your voice to the conversation, go to thecarbonalmanac.org slash podcasts and sign up to be part of a future episode. This podcast is also part of the Carbon Almanac Network. For more information, to sign up for the emails, to join the movement, and to order your copy of the Carbon Almanac, go to thecarbonalmanac.org. Be sure to subscribe and join us here again as together we can change the world.